0: Sunday morning, time for The Great Outdoors with Charlie Potter. Brought to you by the all-new Chevy Silverado and ChevyDriveChicago.com on Chicago's very own 720 WGN.
1: Good morning. Welcome to The Great Outdoors show. Charlie Potter here on WGN Radio, your host. I hope you enjoy the show as we get ready for that magical time of the year. Just a couple weeks away now. I'm going to start off with... Well, I'm going to cover the country this morning uh, on some wildlife science, on some evolutions from the Internet that have led to really very profound changes uh, in, in how uh, the federal government um, collects money, which is interesting. And then I'm going to end up talking about a what's unresolved right now, the um, parent loss of just a tremendous number of birds and um primarily waterfowl and they're still trying to figure out why so let me start off with a story about grizzly bears that most fearsome and also loved animal uh which uh when it comes into contact with humans humans generally don't do well uh interestingly in alaska the coastal grizzly bears or brown bears, as they call them, uh, are enormous in size, and they are almost entirely fish eaters and scavengers. So when you're fishing in Alaska, you'll have bears in ridiculously close proximity to you. You feel incredibly uneasy. And unless you're between them and a fish, or the sow has a cub, uh, you just be careful, but you don't, you don't, worried so much. And I've been in I've had bears well, I've had bears really close to me. When I say really close, I've had grizzly bears thirty yards from me as I stood in a, in a stream catching salmon. And one of the things that you do the moment you if you have a bear around you or you see a bear and you hook up with a fish, the first thing you do is, is break the fish off, break the line, because you don't want the bear A associating you with a fish. And secondly you don't want to track the bear to that fish. So in the lower 48, particularly in the West where grizzly bears are, it's a different story as as it is in Canada and Alberta and, and British Columbia. There, the bears do not live on fish and they come into conflict with humans a great deal more. They are much more aggressive. And this summer, there were some grizzly bear attacks in the American West around Yellowstone Park and in Wyoming that have the attention of wildlife managers, and, and frankly have the attention of the public because they, they, they happened in a circumstance where there were individuals who were extremely experienced in being in grizzly bear country in Yellowstone Park. Uh, one of them was a surveyor, and he didn't even have time to get his pepper spray out. The other individual in Wyoming was a little bit luckier, but it brings up the question that wildlife managers and now the Department of Interior are asking is, when do we have too many bears? So the latest data from the Yellowstone grizzly bear population uh, shows almost 1,000 bears, 965 bears living in Yellowstone Park. That is more than four times, four times the number of bears when they were listed under the Endangered Species Act. And despite their burgeoning population, fatal attacks are still pretty rare even though we have a record number of visitors to Yellowstone National Park, and we better hope they're pretty rare. Most visitors to Yellowstone National Park don't get more than 10 yards from their car. It's the individuals who go into the backcountry that that run into problems. But in the wake of the attack of uh, recent attack of grizzly bears, two Montana congressmen have um, suggested that it's time for grizzlies to be delisted, and they are getting support from across all, all sorts of constituent groups in the American West. They are, certainly have the support of ranchers and the agricultural interests. They also have the support of a lot of conservation organizations because grizzly bear populations have exploded and they have expanded their territory. It's estimated that grizzlies territory is now three times larger than that they inhabited 50 years ago. So while there were a few grizzlies in Yellowstone Park, there really were no grizzlies or very few outside of the park. Now grizzlies are widespread throughout Montana, Wyoming, eastern Idaho, and of course they go all the way up into, into Canada. So they have, they have greatly expanded um, their range, and uh, they are believed to be at the largest number of grizzly bears that we've had in in over a century which is terrific a terrific success from the conservation side but it does bring in the once again focus the the inevitable conflicts that you have between humans and wildlife so there is an effort to delist grizzly bears from the endangered species act uh, the population is well over the target uh, set by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I've actually been trying to find out exactly how much over, but they don't, they don't really know that, but they just say it's well over. But we do know there are four times more grizzly bears in Yellowstone Park than there were 50 years ago. So um, the belief is that something is going to happen because when people start increasingly getting attached, attacked or even dying from grizzly bears attacks, Um, that's when the population, uh, at least in the American West, and certainly for tourists, if it happens to them, begins to pay a lot more attention. So I I would offer that in the coming year or so, there's going to be much more discussion. It's inevitable that if Congress passes a, a bill that will delist grizzly bears, that there will be lawsuits from all kinds of entities that are not necessarily scientifically based, but they're emotionally based or the individuals and entities that file all these lawsuits all the time, Defenders of Wildlife, Humane Society, Sierra Club. Um, It will be a long time before we see a delisting of grizzly bears, in in my view, but certainly it appears that the trend is people in the American West and visitors to the American West are much more conscious about grizzly bears than they they ever were before. Um, Switching from grizzly bears, I want to talk for just a moment about What the Internet has done, uh, which has been a long time in coming, but the U.S. Senate approved the permanent electronic duck stamp. The federal duck stamp uh, began in 1935. It's raised more money for conservation uh, than any other. Program it's almost entirely funded by waterfowl hunters. Ninety-eight cents on every dollar of a duck stamp purchase are required to be used for habitat acquisition or easements. It's it's without a doubt the most effective program at, at protecting wetlands has uh, ever been put into existence. Hundreds of millions of dollars have been raised, uh, actually more than hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, but the Senate unanimously approved. The passage of the Duck Stamp Modernization Act, I love that wording, uh, which the federal duck stamp now will be accessible for waterfowl hunters and others by an electronic stamp. Uh, so you don't have to go to the post office anymore. It used to be until relatively recently you, uh, you would call and call around in the Chicago area. Good luck finding a federal duck stamp at a post office. Um, good luck answer, getting the answer on the phone to begin with, but you would call around to find out what post office had federal duck stamp and then stamps, and then you'd run to get them before they ran out because there was no other way to get it. And sporting goods stores used to carry them, but you, but basically, you had to physically go to the U.S. post office to to buy a duck stamp. Over eight million acres have habitat have been conserved through the federal duck stamp program since 1935. Um, and the, obje- the objective here is to make it far easier, not only for waterfowl hunters, but for anybody who would like to help preserve wetland habitat to be able to buy a duck stamp online. Uh, it only makes sense. The interesting thing that comes with this is the devaluation of the actual federal duck stamp itself. Uh, artists who used to win the annual contest for painting the federal duck stamp, which was then put on a Postage stamp uh, that you bought with your license and made into prints. It was pretty much a an annual income in the neighborhood of nine hundred thousand dollars a year was the average in the nineteen eighties and nineties for an artist who won the federal duck stamp contest. Nine hundred dollars in the nineteen eighties, nine hundred thousand in the eighties and nineties. Worth a little bit more than that today. Um, it was big money if you won the federal duck stamp. It was a ticket. If you were an artist to prosperity today, you win the federal duck stamp and you're lucky to get enough money to go and and buy your family a nice present. There is virtually no demand for printed stamps and and, and, and paintings, the prints made from the federal duck stamp. The market has collapsed. And for individuals who've long had the collection, all the duck stamps since 1935, that collection used to be worth well over $250,000. today it's maybe worth uh, 10% of that. The market has just imploded. Everyone has prints, nobody has room for them. So stamp collectors who have the federal duck stamp prints from the beginning, uh, who thought that they were doing a great thing, not only because they enjoyed it, but because it was gonna be worth a lot of money, have found out that technology made it not so much. And now that we uh, are gonna go to electronic stamps on the internet, you're going to see the value of federal duck stamps in, in, in prints uh, really, really plummet even further to be virtually just just virtually pennies on the dollar for when David Moss and Haggabommer and Owen Gramey and so many great artists were painting the federal duck stamp uh, a few years ago, a few decades ago when when it was a million dollar ticket. If you won the federal duck stamp contest, I'll be back in just a moment, with much more on the great Outdoors show. I hope you're enjoying the show this morning. When I come back, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, a strange disease that seems to be affecting um, waterfowl in particular, and I'm also going to just talk a little bit about what's going on at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, unable to hire people, and then An interesting report, if I have time, on who owns America's farmland. You're listening to Charlie Potter and the Outdoor Voice of Chicago and America, 720 WGN. And first, a message from our longtime sponsors, the Northwest Indiana and Chicagoland
0: Chevrolet dealers. Hiking, camping, and hunting, it's all an adventure in the great outdoors, but nature can be tough. You need to be ready for anything and everything. Chevy Silverado is built to handle the toughest conditions and get you everywhere you want to go, worry free. Silverado's designed to handle the big jobs. It's built for the great outdoors. With over 13,000 pounds of towing capacity and trailering sway control, Silverado can haul the biggest loads on the roughest roads and keep you cool as a Sunday drive. With eight available cameras and up to 14 different views, it can spot trouble before it gets to you. That's peace of mind. And when you're ready for the backcountry, Chevy Silverado 1500 ZR2 owns the off-road. You name it, we run over it. No wonder it's Motor Trend's 2023 four-wheeler pickup truck of the year. So see your Chicago, Land, and Northwest Indiana Chevy dealer or go to ChevyDriveChicago.com and check out a Chevy Silverado. It's freedom to explore the great outdoors. It's Charlie Potter and the Great Outdoors on Chicago's very own 720 WGN. Welcome back to the Great Outdoors show. If you're just
1: joining me, thanks for joining me. And otherwise, I hope you're enjoying the show this morning. Um, the Fish and Wildlife Service is is having a difficulty attracting individuals to work in the field and at national wildlife refuges. This is causing the service to do some things that, frankly, make you scratch your head and also get angry. Uh, The Fish and Wildlife Service earlier this year announced that it was suspending waterfowl hunting at the Swan Lake National Wildlife Refuge near Sumner, Missouri, citing staff shortages as the reason. This is going on in various areas around the country. And the Fish and Wildlife Service, and particularly in the case of, of waterfowl hunting, receives millions and millions of dollars through waterfowl hunting, through license sales, through other fees. And it just seems improbable that the Fish and Wildlife Service would be closing access to areas to hunting because they don't have the staff to monitor hunting and hunting activities. At the same time, the Fish and Wildlife Service is wringing its hands over the decline in the number of hunters across America. So they are spending millions, actually they're spending tens of millions of dollars trying to figure out how to retain and recruit new hunters as they're worried about the dramatically declining number of people who are hunting all forms of all game. And yet, on the other side of the page, they are limiting access to hunters because they don't have enough staff to run areas to make them open for hunting. I have an idea. How about you take some of the money that you're spending on trying to attract new hunters and spend that money to ensure that existing hunters have a high quality place to go? I realize that might be, and I say this tongue in cheek, that might be a novel idea. You you already have a constituent group that is looking for places to go. And yet you are limiting their opportunities to quality places to go or even places to go because you don't have enough people to operate those places yet somebody else in the service and the huge branch not somebody else but a huge branch of the service is trying to get more people to hunt with no place to go so the fish and wildlife service has put itself in a box here and i i think that longer term the fish and wildlife service which is a division under the department of interior really has to sort out what it is trying to be when it comes to providing not only recreation to hunters but availability to all kinds of people who want to enjoy our National Wildlife Refugees and enjoy properties owned by the Fish and Wildlife Service, many of which were purchased by federal duck stamps. So the idea that we cannot deliver in today's world the opportunity to recreate on lands that we paid for to be recreated on because they can't hire enough people is just, is just absurd. Maybe it's just the way the government works, but overall, it's just, inc- it's just absurd that we would be limiting people's ability to access properties that were purchased and being managed for, the, for them being able to access them and hunt on them. So that's what's going on at the Fish and Wildlife Service. Also, um, the boom in Florida is causing all kinds of problems for Florida's Fish, Fish and Wildlife Service Department of Game. Um, fish, wildlife, and parks, because now as Florida becomes such a rapidly growing state, these individuals, no, don't blame them, want to go and recreate. Well, there's only so much land in Florida upon which to recreate, and a lot of it is, well, a lot of it's underwater or shallow water like the, like the Everglades. A lot of it's full of snakes and alligators and things, so you're not just going to go for a walk. So the challenges facing the state of Florida are, How are we going to deal with these millions of people that are sending and living here who now want to use the same state outdoor areas, recreation areas, whether it's to be to hike, bike, fish, hunt, simply be outside as was being used by a population that was vastly smaller only a decade ago. Florida has not increased the number materially at all. The number of areas where individuals can go recreate quite the contrary. There are fewer acres and fewer areas because of the massive development. But there are more people who want to use the lands that exist, putting real pressures on the state of Florida to figure it out. No big surprise there, um, but that's what's going on in states that are, are seeing huge increases in population, Florida being being really at the top of the list, and they've got a lot to figure out. Lastly, I'm not going to get to the, unfortunately, the... The, the the disease that seems to be going through bird populations in the American West. I will do that next week. I promise. I'll do that. I'm going to end now with a little bit of a poem that was written by Ogden Nash. The hunter, the hunter crouches in his blind, neath camouflage of every kind, and conjures up a quacking noise to lend allure to his decoys. This grown-up man or woman, with pluck and luck, is hoping to outwit a duck, Ogden Nash. Whether you're going duck hunting, deer hunting, quail hunting, pheasant hunting, whatever it is this week in the outdoors, I hope that you have a safe and wonderful time and that you are able to outwit whatever it is you're after. Thanks so much for listening. Be back next week with much more on the great outdoors. This is Charlie Potter on the Outdoor Voice of Chicago and America, 720 WGN.